So we went from I have no idea what buying and selling stocks is about to, oh, yeah, I buy and sell worthless meme crypto on the toilet from my phone. Put your money where the movement is. I'm community. Hey, I'm Michael. I'm Capital. So something like that. We are recording. Thumbs up. Let's see. We got uh, U.S. and penalty kicks. Megan Rapino. All right. You know, Megs. Oh, and it's over. Top right corner. Oof. There we go. The U.S. survives and advances. All right. All right. How about that? You? I think you have some Megan Rapino cards. I got a bunch of uh, Panini's, her rookie sticker. I got some cards, too, but this is good. The whole team are just stars. I love it. I love it. Okay, so what are we going to talk about today? Uh, Now that we're hyped up. Man, we got to stick on sports. I want to hear about you went to this card show in Chicago this week. I want to hear all about that. Went to the National, which is the largest card convention in the United States. Maybe the world, probably the world. Spent a day there with Alt, hung out at their booth at a beautiful setup. They were demoing some very cool software, much to the chagrin of a lot of the card dealers, I think, because now on your phone using the Alt mobile website, not even an app, just the mobile website, you're able to activate your camera on your phone and then in real time by pointing your camera at a card get pricing data it feels like magic you're pointing your camera at a card boom 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 as long as it's i think baseball or mlb nfl and nba those are the first three they're supporting you'll get a price back or sort of an alt alt value price of it and it's, it's kind of magical <laughs> it really helps so, you in negotiations let's talk about user experience so when user experience gets better, we've seen it Coinbase, crypto, people start investing in crypto very easily. You see it with Robinhood, with equities and crypto assets, all sorts of financial assets that people can now trade very easily and access makes it easy for people to use. What are your thoughts on how user experience changes the way that people are able to interact with a product, particularly a financial product? It drives everything. It drives everything. It's the thing that is going to unlock a lot of really interesting stuff over the next 10 years. There's a product way of thinking. User experience is, it's nuanced. It's how do you develop a beautiful product that is delightful and straightforward. (laughs) Good girl, Adora. And how do you create something where users feel comfortable just doing what would otherwise be a very complicated, complex thing. And then if you pull that back, That is just the very tip of the spear. So much of creating a better user experience with financial products is actually just even being able to get access to do it in the first place. And that's one of the big stories of how we've gotten here now. And and I think we're just starting to see what happens when that accelerates and normalizes some really interesting behaviors. How do you think about that in the context of creating a new asset class or a new investable asset like cards where people have historically not necessarily thought about it in the context of investing. They may have thought about it in the context of collecting. And yes, certain people obviously were buying 
million dollar, multi-million dollar cards or had bought them well before they felt that they would appreciate. So I'm sure they thought about it as an investment. But when you think about bringing it to the mass market, why is user experience such a big deal in terms of on-ramping so many more people into the asset class and thinking of cards, which I think we both do as a financial asset? Because when you get to the consumer, when you're basically on the phone, you are now competing with Snap, Instagram, Candy Crush. You are now competing for attention with the very best user experiences on the planet. You are now competing head to head for a consumer's attention with everything else they could do on their phone. You're competing with Tinder. You're competing with Instagram. You're competing with everything else that they could be doing with those 10 minutes staring at that device. And so the bar is raised so damn high. And that's why I think the stakes are then so much higher to create that amazing user experience and that amazing connective tissue to get people to want to come back. And, and but look, the revolution that's coming here is dollars never really factored into the equation of all the other things I just talked about. If they did factor in, it was you spending money, which is not always the, not the best pull. But in this case, we see financial products where you actually can feel like time spent here is not just delightful, but it helps me make money. And, and as financial products become more like social products, social products in particular, games you're seeing with, with So Rare, you're seeing it with Axie Infinity, are becoming financial products. And this is the intersection we keep talking about here because they are both on the same collision course. Yeah, you're hitting on the two themes that are really coming together, which is one, monetizing engagement, which social products have done a tremendous job of, and two, ownership. People want to own things. With crappy means, with ad models, with things that were very, let's say, predatory. <laughs> and... Does user experience enable for a different way in which both companies and or individuals can monetize now? Because I think that's where we're going here is this creates a new way for people to interact with the products that they're consuming, investing in, and maybe just wanting to spend time, quote unquote, playing. Cards feels more like a game, but it's also an investable asset too, because there is a game tied to it. You're investing in players who are on the field, you're watching them. There's an element of longer term fantasy sports bets effectively when it comes to something like cards. It's so delightful because it, yes, it ties in nostalgia. And for those of us who grew up with them, it feels really good. For those of us with kids, Olympia's not there yet, but I hope she gets into the hobby because it's a chance to rekindle that and build a connection, and, and that's valuable. You're not buying in the way you'd bet on someone in a game or a match. You're buying because you believe in them long-term. And once you consider putting 50 bucks towards Megan Rapino for a match versus putting 50 bucks towards Megan Rapino for her career, especially knowing you could still sell, so to speak, after the match if you want to, you're going to see dollars shift for sure. And it's going to make it kind of an intelligence test at that point. Well, that's what I love about what's going on in all of these alternative asset classes is you have the consumer social layer, like what Alt or Republic, it's Axie So Rare, are doing with the end consumers and making them want to consume their content effectively. It's not quite content, but they're consuming or spending time there because of a better user experience. But at the same time, the 
underlying market infrastructure is changing as well. Maybe it's because I'm the, the market structure nerd, but I get excited when you say you're able to show real-time data. I think about the life cycle of a trade and what Bloomberg has done for financial markets, providing market data to participants so that people can then know how to trade better. If you have price discovery, and you actually have better data, which Alt is providing, and they're doing it real time, then that creates the componentry for an exchange. Then people can trade, and then you can create liquidity. When you have liquidity, more people come into that venue and want to trade, want to buy, sell, etc. When you do that, you get more people participating in that, and then you have a highly functioning marketplace. So it takes the infrastructure as well, which may not be as sexy as the consumer facing side, but also incredibly important. Oh, for sure. And I think that's what a lot of people have been doing the work now. I still think, look, Plaid, it benefited them a lot to have the FTC shut down that acquisition because, you know, they went out and raised at an even higher valuation. Plaid has built some really great infrastructure technology that went from being sort of indispensable to powering this most recent boom of, of fintech to now they're the incumbent that moves too slow and it doesn't work quite well enough. We're already seeing new startups now, maybe not necessarily trying to drink the milkshake per se, but deciding we're going to build this ourselves because it's so core to what we do. We need speed. We need ag, We need all the other, with other things. We're just going to build it ourselves. And it's wild to see how quickly that cycle has gone. Normally, it takes startups a lot longer to get to the phase of, okay, let's just build it ourselves. But my bet here is that because there's so much money at stake, because it is literally about money, that all of the market incentives are pushing founders to just say, no, 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 this is core to our business. If we're going to build the multi-billion dollar thing we know that we can, we need to own this ourselves and we need to build this. And it's not sexy, but it's vital. Well, you're getting back to user experience. If the user experience for the end consumer isn't great, particularly if you're a consumer-facing company, we talked about this before, and nothing against Plaid. They've done tremendous work for the fintech ecosystem. They have moved this space forward so that fintechs, whether in wealth management, neobanking, all sorts of different consumer-facing fintech applications are now able to operate and function because of what Plaid built. But at the same time, if the pipes don't connect well between the incumbent financial institutions and the fintechs that are upstarts that are enabling people to have better user experiences, then obviously it, it, it impacts the end consumer and who gets hurt. It's actually the fintech that gets hurt because that, that's the company that the consumer is interfacing with. And that's where I think to your point, people are trying to figure out how to create the best possible and most frictionless user experience. And if there's a breakage in that system, they're going to have to figure out a better way, to your point, which is why a lot of these firms are vertically integrating. I think Robinhood, obviously topical given that they IPO'd, they decided to become a vertically integrated business, have self-clearing, which is important because then they don't have to rely on other outside parties to work with. And A, they capture more of the margins and more of the economics, but B, they can create a better experience themselves. And it's not easy to do. There are many fintech companies that rely on or rent others' technology and become the consumer-facing platform with a backend. Many of these neobanks are not technically, quote-unquote, banks in a sense because they rent a license or partner with, have a partner bank on the backend which is not necessarily a bad thing. Again, in the fintech space, and it's not just limited to fintech, but certainly in this world, 
do what you're really good at and what your competitors are not good at. If you're great at acquiring customers very cheaply, building a brand, creating a great user experience, you don't necessarily need to go through all the hoops to, initially at least, until you get big, acquire a banking license, which takes time and money. Vero did that, and, and Vero has been successful, but they had a slog. They had to raise $100 million early on and went through the regulatory process of acquiring a bank license. It's worked out very well for them. They will create a very big business, but it's also not very easy. It takes the right ingredients of people, team, money, and time to do all of that. We live in a world where you don't have to own everything, you can rent certain things, and that's okay. Now, the companies that are able to vertically integrate things, like a company like Alt, part of the reason why I'm so excited about a business like that is because they can own the entire market infrastructure from pre to post trade, market data, the exchange, and then custody of those assets. And you can do so much at each point in that value chain, whereas traditional financial markets can't do that because there's already big players in each of those. And because that market infrastructure hasn't been built yet, they can actually build it themselves. And obviously, they have to be able to do that and execute on it. But if they do it, there's a really big pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. I'm becoming more and more attuned to this. I think the longer we do this podcast, the more I can't unsee where this is all heading. And it's exhilarating. And it's also just surging along. At the start of this year, I was on CNBC and Bloomberg being asked all these questions about meme stocks. It, it's funny how we went from what is this thing? The kids are so weird. This is a fad. Oh my God. To even a few months ago, they actually had Wall Street bets users on CNBC talking about stocks. And, and I'm wondering what is this bizarre reality? But it's the market is quickly realizing, oh yeah, no, this is really, this is here to stay. And, and actually this is the new normal. And now there's more infrastructure rushing in. We were just talking about a startup, which we can't name yet, that really hits at this intersection of community and capital. And like I said, I just can't stop seeing it everywhere. Do you think that the way in which people get information is going to change as a result of this and who they trust changes as well? Yeah, that's wild. I mean, who did people trust before? Let's think of the talking heads on CNBCs. Those were people that I assume people listened to. And what were their qualifications? It's kind of funny, though, because like none of those pundits have, like, visit my website to see my entire trading history. That would be really compelling. If you had um, outstanding performance, like, that's drop the mic. Yeah, that listen to me. Listen to that person. But it seems like it's always entertainment, not substance. And yet we have the data to actually mine this and display it and... I know there are more Roaring Kitties. And would I trust Roaring Kitty with all of my wealth? No. But would I trust Roaring Kitty with some of my wealth? Yeah. Yeah, I would. What would it take to trust somebody like that? And what would you need to see to be able to get comfortable with that? Because I'm trying to just envision that on the internet. What are the markers that make you say, okay, I can trust this person? Well, okay, part of it's the bigger trust in whatever system that's building the technology. So there's the company. And I don't want to get it because there is a decentralized version of this. And I know DAOs are really hot right now, but let's just stick to the boring old school centralized one because that's like here and ready to go. A centralized provider that's building the system that says, okay, here are the people on our platform. You can look at five years of trading history or 10 years or 20 years on E-Trade. Here's performance. And you could do some fun things to zhuzh it up. And then with that, 
I'm armed with enough to be like, okay, I like her stuff. I like his stuff. I don't even know their, I don't even care what their real names are. That's fine. As long as I trust the entity in the middle to be like, yeah, it's real human. They're on the up and up. Then the only other thing I want to know is that when they're making trades, they have skin in the game too. And if it is dollar for dollar matching or a proportionate type thing all day long, sure, that's fine. Because I believe enough in the selfishness and self-preservation of people combined with the track record of performance to say, yeah, sure, yeah, sign me up for that. Again, not my entire life savings, but as a sort of investment slug, for sure. You know what's really cool about this too? Because we talked about this in a prior episode in regards to gaming with Axie, where people are actually, they're not just doing this for fun, but they're doing this to earn a living. And in some cases, actually making more money playing this game. Now, obviously we've talked about the gamification of financial markets where there's certainly an element of this. But even if you put that aside, to your point, Roaring Kitty actually had a job as a professional financial advisor. I think he was at he was at Mass Mutual or something like that. And this is almost like their hobby in a sense. But yet, imagine if they had that copy trade feature, which certain companies have that. eToro has a copy trade feature and others do as well. But imagine to your point, if somebody's hobby actually becomes their profession because they're so good at it and they're just doing it for fun or or out of the love for doing it themselves. And yet, if you create these ways for people to actually follow them or to your point, even allocate money to the strategy that they have, then these people actually can start to monetize that and earn a living doing something that they might actually just love doing. You know, and what happens when people get to make a living doing what they love? Generally, they're going to work harder. They're going to be more effective. It's wild. And look at it this way. So 10 years ago, I remember this meme floating around because, yeah, I was out there hustling community and trying to get people to understand the power of community and, and, and community managers in particular as a job didn't really exist. So I hired Eric Martin as our first community manager at Reddit, maybe in 2005, 2006. I made up that title and I didn't have anyone I could ask. I should do a YouTube video about that. I didn't have anyone ask, hey, what do I call this person whose job is going to be managing our community? And I was just like, hey, community manager. Did you call the people on Reddit a community at the time? Or did you not think of them as a community until you had to come up with that title? This is like a chicken. No, there was definitely communities. So they were called subreddits as like a product. But I was trying to get away from that nomenclature because it didn't make any sense to a normal person. And, and so I was really pushing, and you know, we got to call them communities. And it also didn't make sense. They used to be on subdomains. So it used to be like, I don't know, programming.reddit.com. So it was subreddit. And I was like, no regular person is going to understand this or care. They can't live at a subdomain. They've got to live at like r slash programming. And then we have to call them communities. Can't call them subreddits. So to that end, I was always going like, hey, these are communities. This is the programming community. It's the whatever community. And then we need someone who is a community manager who is on our payroll but who's thinking holistically about all these communities and growing them and and, and incentivizing them and all that good stuff. And at the time, no one knew what that job title was and it didn't sound very serious. And for the next decade, I'd be telling people there is a job description, forget social media manager, which was its own brand new thing. There's another job description, community manager that no one is going to understand, but is going to be a career path. And there are no little kids. There are no six-year-olds who get asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? who said, I want to be a community manager or I want to be a social media marketer because those jobs, those careers did not exist. The concept didn't exist. And I think in the same way, as we talk about bringing more and more 
sort of ingenuity to financial products. There are people who are going to make a living trading, investing in so rare cards. I think their kids will be able to say, oh, I want to do what you do, mama. But they're going to have to go home to Thanksgiving and explain to their parents that they're making a living trading NFT cards. Well, <laughs> but- well, what's fascinating here, too, is that companies like SoRare are community first. They have these online communities. They have people who in some cases are affiliated with the company, but in some cases are not and have their own Instagram pages or Twitter pages or groups online where there's organic creation of community within these platforms that the companies are helping to set up, but then there's people actually participating in this. What's fascinating about that is you now have this generation of community first or community led companies, which you didn't have before. So I really want to unpack how the traditional financial services community needs to think about the advent of community. And what I mean is, if you think about wealth management, for example, take the traditional wealth management model. Yes, wealth managers try to connect their clients with each other and things like that, but it's really a very siloed, kind of static business where it's like a wealth manager has their 50, 100, thousand clients. Those clients aren't connected in any way. Everybody has their own portfolio. And maybe the wealth manager invests across a strategy for majority of clients based on their net worth or whatever it is. But that's not community-based at all. It's very siloed. And even the more traditional markets, so equities markets, people, when they're trading, historically, they're doing it by themselves. They're not thinking about what others are doing. They're not engaging with others. They're not doing it in a community-driven way. How should the financial services community think about the impact of community? Because I think helping them understand that may help them understand the future. And that only comes from somebody who understands community. I don't know. I don't know how to help them understand that. That's hopefully what our podcast does. And they all listen to it. And they're (laughs) like, I feel like I understand this a little bit more now. Put it this way. All of the behavior we've seen to create the last 15 years of the internet, social media, really community-driven products have almost all been without financial incentive. So the world changed. (laughs) Democracies were undermined. Industries were born. Like brains were reprogrammed thanks to internet technology that had zero or near zero financial incentives. That is changing. There are all of the new work of the next 10 years, 15 years, forevermore, will have financial incentives baked into it. And if history is any indication, if it was world-changing without being able to pay your bills, it will absolutely be world-changing when it can pay your bills. And that's a really, really big deal. Because everything from back here will be reimagined through the lens of, okay, great, but how does this actually help me pay my bills? How much is crypto in a decentralized world the driver of that versus like still living in the centralized, more traditional world, but those incentives actually are the case? Look, we're not even talking about crypto yet. I think it makes sense this is all happening in parallel, for sure. I come back to user experience, and whatever creates the most frictionless experience is going to win. And, and whatever is the 10x better experience. I still believe in the short term, centralized finance has room to run. But 
you can see the looming specter of crypto and particular what, what blockchain technology is doing for gaming. Even though it's very simple turn-based gaming, so rare, Axie, the genius of that is that they started with a gaming experience that worked well within the limitations of blockchain technology. You're not running around a map on Fortnite trying to blow up your friends. It's turn-based gaming. It has pauses built into it, and it makes for a delightful experience in spite of the fact that we still need some speed improvements on Ethereum and blockchain. So it's coming. But I think in the meantime, it still behooves us to be making the investments on the centralized finance side because at the end of the day, we're still just talking about ones and zeros. And so as long as what we're doing in the sort of old school centralized finance world is built on these ones and zeros, I think you're going to have invariably a lot of value if you're creating the on-ramps between crypto and fiat. You've seen that's shout out Lolly just raised a great series A. Those on-ramps are valuable and I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to bet on what's coming. I want to bet on what is obviously here and, and then everything that merges them in between. I think about this in a few different buckets. So there's the wealth management community for traditionally the high net worths. And then now that's being opened up or unlocked to a broader swath of people, the betterments, wealth fronts of the world, and others are enabling more people to have their money managed professionally, either by humans, hybrid, or technology. Then there's individuals who maybe haven't had a wealth manager, haven't invested, and they're investing, and they're now owning things through stock ownership platforms, Robinhood, Public, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's people who've never invested at all. So we're thinking about multiple different buckets. The last two buckets, I think, are actually fascinating because those are the ones who will prize user experience and have never had another experience. So therefore, they may be more inclined to choose the new way of doing things. It's also fascinating to think about that first bucket, which is the traditional world of finance where you have people whose wealth has been managed by professionals and yet has been done in a more traditional way. How will that change? Oh, man, it's going to have to improve. And software is going to have to be a part of that connective tissue. And look, I think about this literally every day as we're building the operating system behind 776, because I I know software, especially for a services type business, whether it's wealth management or venture, there's a way to do that job better using software, where you let software do the work that humans are not great at so that we get to focus on the work that we are. But making that leap is not trivial, especially if you've always done things a certain way. So I think you're hitting on something that's actually really interesting. And in many cases, financial services have often not learned from the retail or kind of mass market consumer. It's gone the other way. You take what's at the top end of the market and bring it down to the to the retailer individual investor just in a way that works for them, but is generally not as great because generally the retail investors are the last to get access to things. I think we've seen this in alts, we've seen this in IPOs, we've seen this in various sorts of assets. That's now changing. And I do think that because there's so much innovation in fintech, thanks to companies that we mentioned, like the infrastructure layer like Plaid and the consumer layer like the Robinhoods, Coinbases, et cetera, of the world, What do you think that the top end of financial services can actually learn from the retail end or even just consumer social? Because I think that's where things are going to change so much is the 
traditional financial services world and the top end of the market is actually going to learn from the retail end of the market, even though that may seem antithetical. Dude, I think you're totally right. And you have a good instinct on this too, because you've been in that world. I know we always talk about the idea that we are still in the earliest days of this, but really, if you had asked the average college student 10 years ago, if they bought or sold stocks, I think the numbers, I'm sure someone's actually done the research, but like, it's pretty damn low. Whereas today, it's very different. And, and for a lot of them, how much 6% of Robinhood's Q1 was Dogecoin? 6% of Robinhood's Q1 revenues was from Dogecoin. So we went from, and I'm not saying they're all college students, but like eh, probably a lot in that age group. So we went from, I have no idea what buying and selling stocks is about to, oh yeah, I buy and sell worthless meme crypto on the toilet from my phone. And yet- it still needs to develop. There's a financial literacy component, but there's still a lot more people who are looking for that next level up and it's going to get built, I think, very quickly in the next few years. Is that where people are trading crypto? Yeah, yeah. You're browsing through Reddit and you find something interesting. You're on your little break and then you're inspired to go buy some meme stocks and then you fire up Robinhood and buy a few shares. So watch out, Amazon. People could be shopping, but instead they're now buying crypto. I, look, it's, that's it. You are competing for attention on a tiny device with a little screen 24-7 now, whether you are a fintech product or social media or shopping. It doesn't matter. This is very profound. So I'm going to leave you with a very profound question. One thing that's kind of blown my mind as I've thought about all of this is, is I don't think we can truly wrap our head around how big markets are in large part because of the advent of technology, the internet, but also in many respects, our phone and what that does for connectivity, what that does for consumer purchasing power, what that does for investing. That's something that's been on my mind a lot is like, I, when you look at markets, I don't think I can truly understand how big a market can be. And I'm often wrong on the small side. How do you think about that? Because I think that ties into exactly what you're saying is we never could have predicted people just sitting on their phones while they're chilling out, while they're on the bus, while they're on the toilet, whatever it may be. And we can't grasp how big these markets are. I tend to be more optimistic around things that really delight people on a Maslow's hierarchy of needs type level, on a really foundational, fundamental level. And so what you're getting out of products that offer the dopamine hit or the security that money provides when you have it and the, the pain that it causes when you don't, like that, that hits on a deep level. And then you combine it with elements of community and sort of camaraderie that, again, we as a species really need, you have something that really taps into something that's very, very human. And I think the challenge for creators is to now build these systems, build them well, build them responsibly. And, and I think the market potential is massive, massive. Community, camaraderie, and capital. Yeah, it's real, man. <laughs> Triple C. Also, I have to shout out before I go, this shirt was made by a fan I, I Instagrammed a photo of myself as a kid and I was wearing basically this shirt and I looked at the shirt in the photo. I was like, that is the coolest shirt ever. I was such a swaggy kid. And I got a shirt in the mail from, I'm, I'm totally blanking, it's someone on Instagram. So thank you, someone on Instagram. And we get this shirt in the mail and they're like, hope you enjoy it. I did my best to re, I guess they recreated the image from the photo of me wearing it as a kid. 
put on a shirt. So we've got great fans. Okay, so now we have tattoo test. We have the song test. Now we have the t-shirt test. What is next? I'm sure we'll be surprised and delighted by something else in the not too distant future. That's, I think that's where finance needs to go, is they need to be able to pass these tests. If companies and financial services can pass these tests that we just talked about. Good luck. That, that, that would, good luck. Alexis just put a challenge out to all of these financial services companies, fintechs and traditional financial services companies. So let's see who answers the bell. Awesome. Awesome. 